James chapter 5, verse 7 through 12. I'll read it, and at the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, we're thanking God that he's so kind to give us his word. He didn't have to. But also, as you're saying, thanks be to God, you're, you're indicating to the Lord <clears throat> that the things you teach me today, I just want to be obedient to them and say yes. So uh, let's stand and starting at James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or under any oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Have a seat. So, um, just as a reminder of what's going on in the book of James, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you'll know. But uh, for the last three weeks, James has been uh, targeting the audience that he's writing to. And so knowing what happened last week helps us with this week, but even knowing with two weeks ago helps us in kind of the line of, th- of James. And James, as I've said many times, um, he's writing in a straightforward kind of style, uh, telling Christians, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. And it can come across as law, and we'll talk about that in a little bit at the end. Um, but in a large way, he's just given us very practical advice on what it looks like to follow Christ. But there's some, some things happening in the background so that we can understand what's happening uh, in his text that you should know. For example, in three weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, in chapter 4, starting at verse 13, 4, 13 through 17, James is writing to Christian traveling salesmen. And 4, 14... Uh, 4, 13 through 17, and he'd say, hey, Christian traveling salesman, you're just making all these plans of how you're going to go make money and sell stuff, and you should do that, but there's a way in which it, you should do that, which submits yourself under the lordship of God and saying, if the Lord allows, then we'll go this place and do that, but if the Lord doesn't will, then we shouldn't, and you're just kind of living life like there is no God and like he's not sovereign and that life isn't short and you shouldn't do that. And so Christian traveling salesmen live differently. And then right at chapter 5, verse 1, he switches to a different audience. In chapter 5, verse 1, we looked at last week, 5, 1 through 6, instead of Christian traveling salesmen, now he's looking at non-Christian landowners. And these non-Christian landowners, um, they're very wealthy. They were oppressing the believers. And so as James is writing, and this letter is written to Christians. And so he's, he's writing to non-Christians, but he's writing the letter to Christians. You're like, well, are the non-Christians ever going to hear? No, they're not. So as he's writing, addressing this 5, 1 through 6, uh, addressing it to non-Christians, why would he write a letter to Christians addressing it to non-Christians? The reason why is as he's making statements to non-Christians who are oppressing Christians, he's really targeting the Christians. He's saying, Christians, I want you to know what I think about non-Christian wealthy land business owners uh, that, are, that are oppressing you. This is what their coming judgment's going to happen. It's not going to go well for them. I, ultimately, I will judge them. There's some things that we can learn as we talked about. You can go look at that last week. Uh, but uh, in 5, 1 through 6, he addresses those, those wealthy 
landowners that are oppressing the Christians. And so what we looked at last week as we concluded, we, we went back to the, to the Christians who are being oppressed and, and we ask, well, what do they do? What should they do as they're being oppressed? And he tells us right there in verse 7, therefore, as he says in verse 7, therefore, brothers, wait patiently until Christ comes. You are being oppressed Christians by these non-Christians. They're really making it bad for you. What should you do? You should wait patiently for the Lord's coming because the Lord Jesus is going to set everything right. And so all these things are happening to you. All these injustices are, are making your life terrible. God is the ultimate justice maker. And so wait patiently. So we're starting at verse 7, which was our concluding verse last week. But now we're, we're starting at verse 7. We're going through seven twelve, And we're looking at this directive to these Christians who are being oppressed and going through persecution and trials. And he tells them to be patient. We saw that in verse 7. Therefore, be patient and wait on the coming of the Lord. That's the second coming of the Lord, where obviously it's much different. And so let's stop and let's just ask the big broad kind of opening question. Do you, who here thinks that they are a patient person? Who here thinks that they, they are a patient person? Just like first service, no one said, yeah, me. No one raised their hand. I, I'm with you. Um, so let's just ask them maybe a different way. Um, of all the people in the world, who should be the most patient people? Should be the Christians. We should be the most patient people in the world. So since that's the case, um, he's going to, in this text, give us um, three examples of how we should be patient. And so if you struggle with patience, if you struggle with being patient and steadfast, uh, and, and steadfast under trials, he's going to tell us three different ways in which we can do that. And hopefully, as you hear this, you'll say, these particular things that he's helping me understand how to be patient, when I hear these, it'll shift my mindset so that I won't be impatient and I won't always want my way, etc. But instead... I'll be a patient person that wholly trusts in God and therefore doesn't demand my way and it makes me more patient. So this is where he's, he's going, uh, but he's doing it, obviously, under this kind of um, couching it all in suffering. So we can see in verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore. But the patience that he's calling us for is to be patient in the midst of suffering, which you can see it right there in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience. So the kind of patience is not just, hey, be patient, you know, when you wait in line or when you go to Walmart and they have 45 registers, but for some reason, only one's operating and working. Just be patient. You know, the other 39 are only open on the day after Thanksgiving. That's the only reason why they're even there when they constructed this building. It's not asking us to be patient for that kind of nonsense, right? Um, I obviously am showing my impatience here, but in Instead, he's couching our need to be patient in suffering. And he's returning to a theme that he started with. So he started the letter with this theme of suffering. And so I'll just remind you of a couple of verses the way he said it. The first one is in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Starting with the, he, he launches the letter off saying this. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds or sufferings or persecutions. Count it joy. Be Rejoice that you get to experience suffering. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 12 in chapter 1 also says this way. Um, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Suffering, persecution. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So he's returning to that theme of suffering here in this particular section in 7 through 12 and telling them that he wants you and he wants his, his readers and all, wants all of us to know 
be patient because Jesus is going to come to del- one day, you who are being oppressed and experiencing suffering, experiencing trials, Jesus is going to come to deliver you, who, you, you who are faithful. And you can trust in Jesus' second coming, his coming deliverance. And he tells us then to be patient, to be patient, which we said, the, the therefore in verse 7 tells us to look up based on these things that are happening, based on the sufferings. Here is what you should do. You should be patient. For the first first century Christian, they really believed that Jesus' second coming was imminent. And they lived like it's imminent. They thought at any moment, Christ is going to come back. And since that's the case, we're going to pattern our entire life, not making this our home, but really believing that he's going to come back. And we also, 2,000 years later, even though we would say, oh, it's been 2,000 years, surely we can kind of, you know, ease, ease on that and put the brakes on really living like the coming of Christ is imminent. No, no, we shouldn't. It, we should. We should really constantly, because it's true, believe that Jesus' second coming is near. Near in the sense that everything's taken place. There's only one more thing. Jesus, there's, creations happen, falls happen, Israel's happened, redemption has happened, the prophets have happened, the cross has happened, the resurrection's happened, the Bible's been written. There's only one less thing. We're near in since the second coming. Jesus has got to come back and it's all over. So we should live like the first century Christians, believing that Jesus is imminent, his second coming is, is imminent. So do you? Do you? Day in, day out. Really live that this is the case. Sam Albury says the coming of Jesus will not merely be an in-house event just for his own people by which they're able to join him for eternity. Like, oh, here's Jesus. Let's just kind of sneak out the back door. Instead, it will be a global cataclysmic event. When Jesus comes, and I don't know how, I don't know how, when Jesus' second coming happens, everyone on planet Earth will experience it firsthand. It's not like he'll appear in the sky over in the Middle East and everybody else in America just has to see somebody Facebook live in it. Uh, that's not it, right? Somehow, and I don't know how, everybody on the earth will experience the second coming of Jesus firsthand. How is that possible? I don't know. If God can create ex nihilo, he can certainly create a second coming that's experienced firsthand. Ex nihilo means out of nothing, sorry. If he can create out of nothing then he certainly can create the second coming to be something that we all experience firsthand whenever he does it. And so he's telling us that is our hope, the second coming of Christ. Now, before he gets into how to be patient, he, he gives these three words in verse 8 that I think are key for us to kind of set the foundation to understand if we're really going to be patient, then this is what it's going to look like. You can see it in verse 8. Uh, you also be patient, and he gives us these three words. Let these three words soak down deep into your soul. You also be patient, and he says, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. NIV says, stand firm. That's okay. It's not accurate. Establish your hearts is better. Uh, establish your hearts is better. And here's why because that's what it says in the Greek. But nevertheless, this is what it gets. It doesn't just say like stand firm, like, you know, stand there and be strong. It's telling you that. But when it uses this heart language, it's evoking for us uh, a depth of which we're trying to understand. You're you're experiencing all these pain and oppression and and, and trials and persecution, etc. And what you need to do in this moment, the main thing that James is trying to do is in the midst of all these injustices that's coming to you, Jesus is going to set all these things right. What you need to do right now is be patient. And the way that you can be patient is to take your heart and establish it Holy in Jesus. All of your 
heart wants to obey him, all of your heart finds all of its deep affections in him. Establish your hearts not just to obey, but to love him with everything. Don't, don't love idols. Don't love sin. Don't love other things. Don't want to disobey. Establish your hearts in Christ, loving him, obeying him, and deeply letting all of your affections be set on him. Establish your hearts. And he says, have this strong heart that trusts in God so that you can hope continually and persevere through the trials before his second coming. Calvin writes this when he looks at this. He says, the time that you're having to be patient, the time will appear long. It will take a while and you will feel like it's long because we're very tender and we're very delicate. So instead, during that time, we ought to gather strength and establish our hearts strong in the Lord. Establish your hearts. And he also says this, before we get into it, I want to make sure we point this out. In verse 9, because when injustices are happening, when persecutions happen, when trials are underway, it's very easy for us to grumble. And so he says in verse 9, when it happens, um, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, on the first reading, uh, some commentators say the grumbling is actually against the oppressors. I think at the most kind of basic reading, I think it's actually saying, when oppression's happening to you, Christians, don't grumble to each other and about what's happening to you. You're not, you're not mad at each other. You just kind of get together and have like a, like a, Ugh, I'm going to complain for a little bit with you. Whenever I was a youth minister, I had this shirt made up. It said, uh, Philippians 2.14, do not grain or, com- or complain. Do not grumble or complain. And so when we go on trips and they complain about the food or the hotel, just point them to the shirt. Do not grumble, complain. Don't worry about it. And so in the same way, he's doing the same thing. In the midst of oppressions that you're, happening, that you're having, do not grumble is what he's telling them. Meaning this, this is what he's really getting at. When the oppressors come to you and you want to get together to have a vent session and complain and grumble. In those moments, God doesn't want us as Christians to be complaining people because when we're complaining people, it's showing that in those moments, we're forgetting that God is the one that's going to set all things right and that we're not being patient with his plan to do it and we're not being patient with his timing to do it. And so we should be patient. It's very hot in here, isn't it? i get some water. This is very cold water if that makes you happy for me. Good news about it being hot in here. It was cooler in first service. Um, We're going to try to fix it this week. I'm sorry. All right, here we are. So he tells us not not to be, I got way off track, sorry. He tells us not to grumble. And then after that, uh, I want us to look now at the three ways in which he's telling us to be patient. There's three ways in which he's telling us to be patient. You can see them. They're obvious. They're right there in the text. Um, First one is in verse number seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Like clockwork, the, the, the farmers back then knew we had the early rains in the fall and the late rains in the spring, and God is faithful to send it every time. He, it's like clockwork. It's going to happen. And so the farmer knows this. He knows how God works, and he's telling him, be patient like the farmer. And so uh, for the farmer, rain is absolutely essential. We know it's essential. The first century here, of course, knew this. But even all of us, as, you know, try, trying to be backyard gardeners, we know this. Like, we, we, need, we need rain. We need for God to give us rain for it to happen. Too much rain, the food can rot. Not enough rain, the food can die. Cold kills it. We need for God to, to have 
all these things that are out of our control, we need for God to take care of these things. And so he's saying, be patient like the farmer. Being patient that you know that God's going to bring the rain and he's going to meet every day, meet all of your needs until he comes. So be patient like him, knowing that God's going to bring the rain. And just like the farmer knew that God was going to bring the rain, we should know that the second coming is going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, as he tells us, to be patient like the farmer, I want us to think about how to be patient like the farmer in two specific but very different ways. One, the way that we're going to be like the farmer is that we're going to trust. We're going to trust. We're going to trust totally in the Lord. You can put it up. Trust totally in the Lord in everything that you cannot control. As a farmer, there's lots of things that you cannot control at all. Lots of things that you can't control. You can't control whether it's going to rain. You can't control if it's going to get cold. There's a lot of things that you can't trust. And so being patient like the farmer is meaning that in the midst of all these trials, there's so many things out of my control that I can't do. But if I'm going to be patient like the farmer with all these multiple things out of my control, what I need to do mainly here is trust God. I need to trust that he's going to be faithful to meet my every need. There's, There's just things I can't do. And so since that's the case, What he's wanting them to do is we need to trust that God's totally in control. We need to trust that God is in the midst of all of our trials. With so many things crazy, James is pointing them back to some essential truths as trusting God like the farmer. Or being patient like the farmer through trust means this. The essential truths are this. One, you need to believe that God is good. You need to believe that he's good. In order to be God, he has to be good. And so the things that he does are good. They're good for you. They're good for me. They're good for everyone. And you have to believe this. He's pointing them to be patient like the, like the farmer means trusting, means knowing that God is good. Also, knowing that God is trustworthy. You literally can trust him with your very life. He's good. He's trustworthy. And this might be the most important, the essential truth that James is pointing to, that God loves you. He really does love you more than anybody. He loves you more than you could ever conceive. No one loves you like God loves you. No one, not your parents, not yourself. No one loves you like God loves you. He's good. He's trustworthy. He loves you. And he knows better than you do. He knows how things should go better than you. If I orchestrated events, they would be vastly different than God's and mine wouldn't be as good as his. Not even close. Mine would be bad, I'm sure, right? But he knows better than we do. He loves us. He's trustworthy. He's good. He knows better. And ultimate, and here's the last one. He has our ultimate best in mind. Ultimate best means hills and valleys. If it's constant best, then everything's just hunky-dory all the time, right? Everything, never a problem. And that's not real life. Our ultimate best means there's great times and there's trials and there's great times and trials. And all those things are working out for Romans 8.28 to really happen in our life. As Romans 8.28 says, uh, I'm not going to attempt to quote it verbatim because I know that I'll get it a little bit wrong. Romans 8.28 says this. One more page. And we know that for those who love God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is true. If you love God, all things work together for good. And so we need to be like the farmer and trusting God With everything that's out of your control, you trust God. Everything. But there's a second way that we are patient like the farmer. And as I said, it's completely different than the first one. The first one is trust. The second one 
is work. The farmer gets up in the morning and he gets out there when the sun's coming up. He works all day, works his fingers to the bone, and then he goes to bed. It's completely different. The first one is trusting God with everything out of my control. The second one is I am going to be absolutely faithful with every single thing in my control that I can. There's lots of things in my control with me being patient, with the way that I fight sin, with the way that I share the gospel, with the way that I pastor my family, with the way we pastor the church, with the way that you uh, interact with your community, the way that you interact with your job. There's, There's tons of things in your control. And so the second way we're patient as a farmer is we work as hard as we can with everything that's in our control and we honor God with every single thing that we can. We trust with everything out, but man, there's a lot of things in your control and you work. God doesn't want us just to sit back and do nothing. Trusting in the sovereignty of God does not equal laziness. Trusting in the sovereignty of God equals working hard like the patient farmer Trusting in God, which being our first action, still leads us to our second action, which is we work hard. This past week we had staff meeting. Jordan was given the um, devotion. We start with the devotion. and Jordan was given devotion. He read from Isaiah 61. It says this, Isaiah 61, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And so as he read that verse, um, he found a Spurgeon sermon and read a paragraph from the Spurgeon sermon. I was like, send me the link. That's exactly what I mean when I say work. What you just said, give it to me because that's exactly what it means to be patient like the farmer. This is what Spurgeon, commenting on Isaiah 61, but perfectly applies to what we're looking at. Arise, shine for your light has come and the glory has shine upon you. Spurgeon writes, the first word of it is arise. Like get up, do something. There is much need, dear friends, that we should be sometimes at least awakened Hear the persons in the light. The day has dawned upon them, but they're just fast asleep. So the trumpet is sounded in their ears and the watchman shouts aloud, Arise, shine for your light has come. I believe that there are some Christians who have wasted a large part of their lives for need of somebody or something just to wake them up to work like the farmer. There is more evil. This is the key sentence that struck me when Jordan read it. There is more evil worked in the world by lack of thought than by downright malice. There is more good left undone through the lack of thought than any aversion to doing some good. In other words, what he's saying is Christian apathy seems to be doing more damage than outright haters of God trying to do bad things. Just the apathy of Christians is doing worse things than people that don't like us. And he goes on. Some Christians appear to have been born in the land of slumber. And they continually live in their native country of dreams. They occasionally rub their eyes and suppose themselves to be wide awake, but they are in in the enchanted ground. They're in Disneyland. They didn't have it back then. That's what he said. And though they, they know it not, they are little better than sleepwalkers most of their days. The patient farmer works. He's not apathetic. He's not lazy. So our day is this. Plant, water, pray. Plant, water, pray. Plant, water, pray. Plant, water, pray. All day long, plant, water, pray. Plant, water, pray. Plant, water, pray. And when we lay our head on the pillow at night, we trust in God and say, you give the results. Our whole day should be filled with us working. So that's what it means to be patient like the farmer. Trust God with everything out of our control. Work as hard as we can with the numerous, numerous things in our control. 
Second, he tells us this. If the, the first example is to be patient like the farmer, the second example is to be patient like the prophet. You can see it in verse 10. <coughs> be patient like the prophet. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Be patient like the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord or they spoke the truth. So first, James is pointing these first century hearers to the prophets because he's wanting them to know, you Christians who are experiencing suffering right now, this is not novel. This is not the first time. God's people have experienced suffering in the Old Testament. God's people are experiencing suffering in the New Testament. And God's people will experience suffering until Christ comes. You're not the only ones, because if you're the only ones, you would think, well, God must really dislike me. He's super mad at me because it's happening. But if it's happening to all of his people, then we say, no, it's not that. It's that this is the way it happens. And therefore, we shouldn't think that God hates us. Instead, God loves us and he wants us to trust him. And so the first thing that he says as he points them to the prophets is to help them understand that this is not novel. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when people persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on Jesus' account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we know that this is not novel. And he tells them um, in James chapter 5, the way that they were patient as prophets is not inaction, but look what they did. They're a little bit different than the the farmer. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet who it is who spoke in the name of the Lord. So the first thing he's wanting those prophets to be is to realize it's not novel. The second thing is that he's wanting them similar to the farmer, that whenever you're patient waiting on the Lord, you shouldn't have a posture of inactivity. You should have a posture of activity. You should be doing stuff. And the thing that you should be doing, obviously you can be like the farmer and working, but another thing that you should be doing is like the prophet, which is speaking the truth, or as it says here in verse 10, speaking in the name of the Lord. So this means that we should be active in talking about Jesus. Sam Alberry says it this way, suffering, when the Christian is suffering, does not render us incapable of serving or witnessing. As a matter of fact, I would say suffering is the time to be most obedient to serving and witnessing. We're, we're in the posture of that, and people look at us and say, why are you in the midst of all this, wanting to serve and witness to me right now because Jesus is worth it. So I would say that in the midst of suffering, it's the best time. And the prophet in the middle of this persecution stands up and speaks the truth. In the middle of suffering and waiting on Jesus, we then therefore are to also speak the truth of Jesus faithfully. David Platt says, times of suffering are almost often the most golden opportunity to speak a word for the glory of God. In the midst of suffering, it is the most appropriate or golden opportunity. And so when James says prophets, you know, who is he talking about? Um, Commentators speculate. One said, Jeremiah, I I thought of Isaiah. I thought of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Whenever he had just seen the the holiness of God, the perfection of God, in Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, he had just come face to face 
uh, with, with God and he saw the train filling the temple and he heard the angel saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is, uh, the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So he sees his glory, he sees that he's holy, he sees that he's revered, he sees that he's authoritative, he sees that he's alive. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So that king dies, but the king of kings never dies. He sees all these things and he doesn't cower back and say, oh, this is too much. I just need a break. Instead, whenever he says, now that you've seen my holiness, he expresses that he's a sinner. And since he, when he expresses he's a sinner, he doesn't say, so I can't do anything because God asked Isaiah when he says, he had heard the voice of the Lord. So who am I going to send therefore to go to my people? Who's going to go for us? Us as in the Trinity. And Isaiah, knowing that he's a sinner, seeing the holiness of God says, here am I, send me. I'll go. That's the prophet in the midst of <laughs> a whirlwind saying, yes, I'm going to go speak. I'm going to go speak. I think that's a great biblical example. But also, uh, I want to read you uh, a somewhat modern day example of it as well. This is from Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a book on missions, international missions, a plea that we would love and care for international missions. And I think this is one of the greatest examples of what it means to be patient like a prophet, being willing to speak truth. This is a story of the, one of the most unlikeliest men to ever attend a conference. He goes and he tells a story at this conference, and here it is. His name was Joseph, and he lived in the middle of uh, a Maasai warrior in the midst, in the middle of Africa. One day, Joseph, he was walking alone on a hot, dirty African road, and someone met him and shared the gospel of Jesus with him. Then and there in that moment, Joseph accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit transformed his life, and he was filled with so much excitement and joy. The first thing he wanted to do was return to his village where there wasn't one Christian, and never heard the gospel, and share that good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going door to door, telling everyone that he met um, <clears throat> about the cross of Jesus and the salvation that it offered, expecting for their faces to light up the same way his had when he heard the message. To his amazement, the vill villagers did not only did not care, but they became violent. The men seized him and held him to the ground while the women then beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged out of the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole. And there, after many days of passing in and out of consciousness, drinking water from the water hole, he found the strength to finally get up. And he wondered about this hostile reception that he had received from the people that he had known all of his life. And he decided, I must have just left something out of the story. I must have told the, Jesus of sto the story of Jesus incorrectly. And so after he rehearsed the message in his head, he decided that he would go back and share his faith once more with his tribe. He limped back to the circle of huts and he began to proclaim Jesus to them. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded with them. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and, he held, and they held him down while the women beat him with barbed wire again, reopening all the wounds that begun to heal. And once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village out into the bush and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. But many days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred and determined to go back. 
He returned to the small village. And this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. They flogged him and beat him for the third time and probably the last. He spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women were beating began to weep. This time he didn't wake in the bush. He awoke in his own bed. And the ones that were severely beating him were now trying to save him and nursing back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. This is what it means to be patient, like the prophet being willing to speak the truth in the midst of suffering and persecution. God takes the trials that we go through and uses them for his glory. And people come to know Christ. That's the second way we can be patient. Be like the farmer and be like the prophet. Be willing to speak the truth. The last one, it's right there. We can see it there in verse 11 when he points us to Job. Behold, we, have, we consider that those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, the sufferings of Job. And the purpose is this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the third one is... Be patient like Job, hoping in God's purpose. Now, Job's 42 chapters, I can't, I can't possibly go through it right now. <laughs> uh, read Job this week, I invite you. It's very long, very good, very, very early, very, very early. Job was likely a contemporary of Abraham, so it was written very early. And so, uh, if you don't know the story much, most of it takes place that we can understand kind of how most things happen. It starts in chapter 1, and in chapter 1... Um, the devil's just trying to, you know, wreak havoc all over the earth. And he comes up to heaven. And he's like, I want to wreak havoc all over the earth. I want to find somebody. And God's like, hey, have you, uh, have you considered Job? And Job, he's like, Job, you put this hedge of protection around Job. Job would never curse you because you've protected him so great. And God's like, okay, um, Satan, you're a dog on a leash. I'm totally sovereign over you. I can stop you at any point. And I can let you do whatever I want. You have no power over me, but I will give you a little bit of power that you can do whatever you want to Job, but you can't kill him. That's the basic gist in their interactions. And so tragedy hits Job. Tragedy loses all of his children, loses all of his stuff. The hedge of protection is gone. And throughout the entire 42 chapters, we're, we're trying to see, is Job ever going to curse God for these horrible things that have happened? Um, it's a long story, and Job has some low points. Job definitely complains. Um, but in the end, after never cursing God, um, he does say this. At the very end of chapter 42, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent and dust and ashes. This is how he fi finally finishes. Now, the great thing about the New Testament including Old Testament stories for us, is this. If you ever look at the Old Testament and you're wondering, what is that text in the Old Testament about? Anytime a New Testament writer mentions that, you should praise the Lord. Search no further for the meaning of the Old Testament passage. The New Testament writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has rightly and perfectly interpreted that Old Testament passage for us. So what is the purpose of Job and all that thing? The entire 42 chapters? Well, when you read the entire 42 chapters and you see the bad advice of the three friends and you see all kinds of things and Job complain and finally God comes to him like, who's this who darkens my counsel? Why are you like, we see all this kind of ups and downs of Job and we're like, man, Job, you, you, you know, you've really not done it right here. Um, and we think, well, Job, Job failed. 
the New Testament writer James tells us that he didn't. So if you want to properly understand Job, look at James 5.11, and it's this. We consider those who remain steadfast. You have heard, here it is, of the steadfastness of Job. James tells us through all that, he never cursed God, but he does remain steadfast. And the thing that makes Job steadfast is not Job. Like, Job's awesome. He wasn't. The writer here, James 5.11, wants us to understand that the things that makes Job steadfast is not Job, but instead the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job was steadfast because God made him steadfast because God is compassionate and merciful. So that's how we understand it. So when we say be patient like Job, be steadfast um, like Job, we, we hope in the ultimate purposes of God in our life. And we won't do it in our own strength. Instead, we will do it because God himself is merciful and compassionate. So when we're told to be patient like Job, it's because, and it anchors itself in the compassion of God and the mercy of God. <coughs> Job has some good points. Whenever the tragedy hits in Job 1, 21, after all of it happens, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so in these moments, he's doing well. As, as you go through the chapter, the book, he's not. Even whenever his wife tells him to curse God and die, he says, You speak like a foolish woman would speak. Um, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And all this Job never sinned with his lips. And all throughout the entire book and all of his sufferings and all of his bitter complaints that he has, Job, about his sufferings, Job does not curse God. And so James 5.11 is true. He does remain steadfast. And James is pushing us to say, be like Job. And the way that you can be like Job is to understand the very last three words of verse 11. And it's this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is what James wants us to understand in the midst of our sufferings. God is compassionate and merciful. You can be patient for the second coming of Jesus to set all things right, all of our sufferings, persecutions, trials, and justices, because the Lord is compassionate and merciful, and he will do this for you. Endure all the trials, because God's purpose is going to take place. His goodness and his sovereignty will, will carry you through. So, as you look at these three, just think to yourself, where do I need to grow? In which way... In which way do I need to be more patient? Do I need to be patient like Job to really trust in the compassion and mercy of God and endure? Do I need to be more patient like the prophets? Do I not speak the truth as often as I could and I need to be bold like that? Do I need to be more patient like the farmer? Do I have a problem with trusting God with everything out of my control and I need to do it? Or do I have a other problem where I'm lazy and apathetic and I need to trust God by working hard? Where is it that you need to grow as you look at all this? <coughs> he ends this little section in verse 12, which seems like he's changing subjects on us, but I don't think he is. When he says, but of all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under con condemnation. Just to kind of give a quick understanding, I don't think that he's saying you can't ever like in a courtroom say, I swear to tell the truth. I don't think that's what he's saying. You can, it's fine. I think what he is saying is this. Be the kind of person that follows Christ that when you make statements about something being true, you don't have to, in order for them to really think that you're telling true, you don't have to follow it with a qualifier saying, no, I promise you that you're, you are a truth teller that when you say something, they believe it. 
Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't be the, the wayward liar that whenever you're really telling the truth, you have to say, no, 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 no. I really mean it here. I promise you I'm telling you the truth here. I think that's what the, the general gist is that Christians are truth tellers. I, I say this all the time in my house. Hey, kids, the, cha- the chambers are truth tellers. The chambers are truth tellers because that's what God wants us to be. He wants us. Now, why is it? Back to this. Why do I think that James isn't switching subjects on us? Why is it that I think this isn't the same? Well, first, um, we know that, that James throughout the book has been talking about the way we talk and let our tame our tongue, etc. And even in this text, we saw in verse 9, he tells us in verse 9 not to grumble or complain. And so that's, that's still in the couched subject of the way we talk. And here he's saying the way you talk is important. And let your yes be your yes and let your no be your no is in context by, here's how Sam Alberry says it, the swearing of oaths is not another expression, is another expression of double-mindedness. And James is returning to his theme of consistency in the Christian life, being patient, being consistent, waiting, and also being consistent with the way you talk. Meaning, he goes on, in the midst of suffering, prohibiting swearing of oaths is a further application of the patience that James has been commending them. As you're being patient, then you shouldn't swear of oaths, but you should just speak plainly and truthfully as, you're, as a patient person. And so I don't think he's switching gears. I think he's staying in the line of what it means to be patient. Now, thus far you've heard lots of, this is what you should do. This is what it, ha- and it sounds like a lot of rules and law and things to keep. And I want to make sure that we understand that as you hear those things, that we always apply the gospel. Because if you're like me, you feel inadequate. Like, okay, that's a lot of stuff for me to work on. I stink at all that. I'll probably never get it down right if I do it on my own strength. So, man... <clears throat> You made me feel bad. Thanks for packing stuff on to me that I can't accomplish this week, Fud, compared to last week and the week before and the week before. Let's, let's make sure we bring the gospel to bear and hear the good news of Jesus and how his death and his burial and his resurrection is absolutely essential for you to be able to understand this text. One, here it is. Jesus is the perfect farmer for you. He's the perfect farmer. Because you and I don't trust God completely, he does. And he does it for us. And so because we, his perfect work on the cross has, has forgiven us now, because he's forgiven us and given us the Holy Spirit, we have, because of the gospel, the ability to actually live out <coughs> being patient like the farmer because Jesus is that perfect farmer for us. So when you hear do this, always remember the gospel is the reason why that you can do this. Second, Jesus is the perfect prophet. You and I are incapable of being the perfect prophet, and you're not expected to be the perfect prophet. Jesus is the one that has spoken the truth into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and his word. He gives us continually his truth. And so since he's the perfect preacher, the perfect prophet, when you and I don't do it perfectly, he does it for us and through us. And so this command to be this prophet, being patient, remember... The gospel makes it so that you can. And Jesus is the one. All of our hope, all of our affections, all of our desires, all of everything, trust, is on Jesus, not ourselves. He's the perfect farmer. He's the perfect prophet. And he's the better Job. He's the better Job. No one hopes in God's purposes like Jesus does. You and I can't. Job didn't. No one, because he is God, and he's the one that actually brings his purposes about. If Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the entire world by the word of his power, then he also has the ability to bring about his purposes. And so he's the best Job because where Job was steadfast, Jesus is ultimately always steadfast for us. 
He will bring our sanctification to completion. He's promised to it in Philippians 1, 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, among other places. And so we never, he never had the need to repent because he never sinned. And therefore, he lived the perfect life for us on the cross. And he is the best version of all the Job because he is the most steadfast one. And so we trust in him and we're forgiven by all of our sins and all of our failings. And so as you hear these things that we're supposed to do, remember the gospel is the, the lens by which we understand the entire Bible. And so Jesus is the perfect farmer. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Jesus is the truer and better Job. <clears throat> and so as we conclude... We can, in light of the gospel of Jesus, we can, because the Holy Spirit has been given to us, suffer well and wait on Jesus to make all things right. And we work hard, and we preach the gospel, and we stay steadfast, but ultimately, because Jesus has done all these things for us, all of our hope is not in ourselves or even this world, but all of our hope is is in Jesus and his second coming. And so James exhorts the first century hearers in us, then therefore, as verse 7 says, therefore be patient until the second coming of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we, we pray this morning that as we hear this text and we're challenged by it, <coughs> that we would be um, patient in the midst of suffering. And if we're not experiencing suffering, we're not experiencing trials and just wait five minutes. It will happen. It's not novel to the first century here. It's not novel to the prophets, and it's certainly not for us. It will happen. We know it will. We all will experience persecutions or trials or sufferings. And so may we be obedient to James chapter 1, verse 2 and 12, which tell us that we should count it all joy, my brothers, and that we consider that we are blessed when we're made stand fast in the trials. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus that helps us be able to live these things out. All of our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.